Hello everyone, you're listening to America Meditating Radio. We collect wisdom, inspire each other, and empower hearts on demand 24-7. I'm Sister Jenna, host of the syndicated America Meditating Radio. Join us as we talk one-on-one with leading experts who answer life's most compelling questions. Because in a world of uncertainty, we need answers right here, right now. America Meditating Radio, a show for everyone to learn more about this amazing thing called life. I'm Ivy Hilton, and you are listening to America Meditating Radio Show. I rise above. I'm the master of my own mind. I sit here with a pure intention to gain mastery over my thoughts and therefore mastery over my words and actions. As I hear the thoughts through words of others, I ask myself, is that my truth. My original nature is one of love, peace, purity, truth, and joy. And sometimes when I hear the words that do not match my original nature, I have the choice to rise above and remember who I really am. As a master of my mind, I decide which thoughts stay and which thoughts must go. I choose to rise above. As I rise above in consciousness and interpretations of stories, narratives that no longer support my truth or present, greater power, greater peace, and acceptance for myself and others surrounds me in this moment. As a master of my mind, I rise above, replacing thoughts of fear, anger, greed, and divide thoughts of belonging, respect, love, and wisdom. As I rise above, I find clarity, a deeper meaning, and the courage to continue to move on. I rise above. And I remember who I am and why I'm here. And that is 
love everyone the same. Let me sit in the state of being above. Welcome to America Meditating Radio. That was I Rise from Inclusion Revolution Together with Love. I'm your host, Sister Jenna. How are you doing? Hope you're taking care of yourself. Hope you're remaining safe, wearing your mask, social distancing, but not letting your heart becoming distant from humanity. It's been an interesting time. As I speak to everyone, there's a sense like there's one group of us that's like really pulling back. And I don't know if it's a giving up or a giving in. And then there's another group of us that are just like, I'm tired of this. This is not the way to live. I got to get out. I got to meet people. I have to be with people. There's like a lot getting stirred within the soul. But also there's a lot of changes And as a result of these changes, a lot of new energy is emerging. We have a new president. The president and the vice president and this new administration is doing incredible work in the short time that they've already been in office. I mean, heck, they've had to clean up a mammoth of a mess that was left behind. No pun intended, of course. But just imagine the amount of empathy, compassion, forthrightness, determination, clarity that is really needed. The fact that all that took place previously in the last five years or so, that it needed to take place to shed light on what it is that we actually have become complicit in. And now the soul and the humanity is saying, let's wake up. And it's a time. Our guest here is someone I'm looking so forward to. You might have remembered my conversation with Dr. Clarence B. Jones a while back in which we really had this deep dive and deep heart-to-heart conversation about back in the day when Clarence was with Dr. King and the fact that he and King worked so strongly together about the letters and the advocacy and everything. And here's Dr. Jones at 90-something now. And he's looking at, well, you know, how many more years do I have? And he's saying, now I'm seeing the changes that we marched for. I'm seeing the changes that I wrote about, but it's still not there yet fully. And the whole thing is, will we see equality and respect and cooperation in our lifetime? Well, let's see. Dr. Augustus White III has been called the Jackie Robinson of orthopedics. But he was the first African-American medical student at Stanford, the first African-American surgical resident at Yale, the first African-American professor of surgery at Yale, and the first African-American chief of service at a Harvard teaching hospital. Gives you an idea of who we're going to talk to. Well, he's now a professor of orthopedics and medical education at Harvard Medical School and Professor Emeritus in the Harvard-MIT Division of Health Sciences and Technology. Dr. White has pioneered the movement in America and the Canadian medical schools for culturally competent care and is a leading voice in the medical community's ongoing efforts to address the significant disparities in health and healthcare suffered by African Americans and other minorities, of course. 
Among his many awards is the William W. Tipton Jr. MD Leadership Award for his work as an educator, mentor, and champion of diversity initiatives. His new book is titled Overcoming Lessons in Triumphing Over Adversity and the Power of Our Common Humanity. I can't be more thrilled and privileged to welcome the wonderful Dr. Augustus White III to America Meditating Radio. Dr. White, a very warm welcome to you, and thank you so much for joining us on air today. What a wonderful welcome. That inspires me and warms me up, and I look forward to our communications together this morning. Thank you so much. Well, you know, sometimes we don't know that we will become icons or messengers of transformation. Dr. White, a lot of us don't really plan to be big. Just recently, this wonderful girl, Amanda Gorman, read this beautiful speech at the inauguration of the Biden, and she has just pivoted into the world. She's just become the well-known sensation and well-deserved as well. And right now what we're witnessing is the insightfulness of the fact that African Americans, especially in the United States of America, were always very accomplished, very educated, very well-deserving, but it was never really seen. You have lived an amazing life. It's filled with a lot of accomplishments. How do you feel about being called the Jackie Robinson of orthopedics? First of all, I was a great admirer of Jackie Robinson. I never knew him, but I found his achievements and his character and his personality to be all sources of inspiration to me. Of course, it's a bit of dramatic exaggeration to compare me to him, the great man that he was, and the fantastic differences that he made. But nevertheless, it's fun and it's enjoyable. I admire lots of athletes, and Jackie Robinson was certainly among them. And there was not so much drama around many of the things that I had a chance to do, but it was gratifying because I sort of grew up in a culture that thought one partial solution to our issues of race is the fact of integration. You don't hear that word so much anymore now. You hear it as diversity and inclusion, maybe. But anyway, I'm happy to have that little corollary. And, uh, You're happy to have that distinction. But to be very frank, Dr. White, you don't even need to be the Jackie Robinson of orthopedics. You just are number one. And number one within your being in terms of the passion that I'm sure you have brought into your profession and who you are. You know, you were the first African-American in numerous categories. What do you think makes all of these the first? What was it that you felt made it the first? Any idea? Well, yeah, it's a combination of situation and timing. You know, there were no firsts for many years in African-American history. It was all nevers. And gradually, you know, we had the first. We couldn't play quarterback on football team, but we had the first. You know, we couldn't have a coat of an NFL football team, and then we had the first. And so it goes on and on, and it's kind of a joy. It's a celebration. I mean, I was very excited to watch, blocking on her name right now, but the young woman from Harvard who offered the tremendous poem at the inauguration ceremony. That was fantastic. 
So it's a celebration. It should convince people, although it doesn't always do that, but uh, people of color are capable and can make a contribution and can contribute and can excel in many ways. And we should offer them that opportunity and then benefit from the contribution that they can make. So I always enjoy that. Me too. And it's interesting for all of us, black, white, Chinese, Indian, you know, the media and what Hollywood did in depicting what African-Americans' definition of who they were, that has also created such a stereotype that we've had to break through that, too, on our own. Tell us about your father, Augustus White, Jr. He must have been one of a very few, if any, African-American doctors practicing in the South. Your mother was a librarian. How much did they influence your choice to become a doctor? Well, they influenced my choice, certainly, to work hard and do the best I could of whatever I did. And, of course, they encouraged my dad to be sort of a role model, and he certainly enjoyed a reputation. He passed away, actually, when I was still eight years old. But he had an influence, and I would meet other adults, and they'd say, oh, your dad's a doctor. You're going to grow up and be a doctor like your dad, and sort of challenging me but encouraging me at the same time. I responded to that and ended up wanting to be a doctor. I enjoy being helpful, and I have kind of an intuitive empathy, I think, in that even when I was a young kid, and I can remember back very much. I mean, I don't know how old I was, six, seven, eight, nine years old. But when we played cowboys and Indians, army, you know, fighting wars, the people who got shot or killed or injured in little play acting, I would always have a natural compassion for them. And I can remember that. It's kind of an odd thing, but I guess that's just kind of part of my makeup to want to try to be helpful, to want to relate to my fellow humans and to be proactive and somehow be empathetic, which is a word that I've come to enjoy and appreciate very much because empathy rewards the empathizer as well as the empathizee, if that's a word. But the person who's receiving the goodwill and the compassion it's helped and feels better and does better. But so yeah. does the person who's offering that compassion and that goodwill yeah. and that empathy. The one uh, who's offering the empathy, they get served first. So that's something that I think it was kind of intuitive that I wanted to be a physician. There were other things along the way. I thought at one point, you know, other little things, but it was always, being a doctor was always part of them. You know, this was right. when I was a young kid and People would ask me, you know, what I want to be when I grew up. Yeah, and you were very clear. You know, sometimes we are naive enough to think that if you're educated, you've kind of transcended a lot of prejudices or education is supposed to transcend our ignorance. And that's not necessarily always the case. Were there any prejudices that you witnessed growing up in Jim Crow era in medical school? Were you still feeling that even though you had studied, you're doing well in what you're doing? Did you feel still prejudice? Yes, but not so much. I know now it's dramatized a lot more and people are much more sensitive to it. And what I'm alluding to now is this whole thing of our younger students who are coming into medicine, our women females experience stereotyping and experience examples in which little microaggressions disrespect them, disrespect us, disrespect black people, disrespect women, just because of their gender differences. 
And to some people, it's much more threatening than to others. But people need to understand it, analyze it, and see what works well for them in terms of being able to respond to it. But yes, I did experience some of that. You know, I was in a situation where I was confident, I was well respected. I'm thinking right now as I went through my residency training and when much of this occurs, it occurs with medical students as well. And also I was in an environment at Stanford in which those things were pretty subtle. They weren't in your face the way they can be. So one needs to have resilience, and that's what we hope our book will help a lot of people to develop. I think we as human beings have some intuitive, some integrated into our lives and our psyche and our personality, the potential to be resilient and the potential to respond to these microaggressions that can distract us, can discourage us, can anger us. And as we look back at our humanity, our common humanity, we as human beings are given the potential to be resilient to these kinds of things. And that's what we try to help when we're trying to help some of our students. We try to focus on the potential that we all have to be able to push back, to be able to try again, to be able to help others in the process, and to be helped. And so that's what our book shows and describes 20 screaming examples of people who overcame phenomenal challenges and were able to be enormously successful by sort of reaching into and utilizing the human potential that we all have to be able to survive and get up and get back in the race, so to say. I love that, Dr. White. How has the COVID-19 pandemic exposed the way racism fuels health and healthcare disparities among people of color and other yes. minorities? Why do these disparities continue to persist, though they have been researched and documented for many years? It's an extremely complex issue. First of all, much of it is unconscious bias. We are programmed, unfortunately, in many ways by our education, by our experience, by our all these social and personal determinants of health feed into us having disparate care for women, for pregnant women, for women in and around the time of their delivery, for African Americans, for Latina women more so than others, but Caucasian women also. I mean, if you go in the hospital as a female and you have a male physician, you go in with a heart attack, your chances of survival are not as good as if you had a female physician. And this occurs with gender as well as with issues of race and others. If you're gay, if you're not, your care can be different. So there are these attitudes that exist in our culture, in our society, that we're looking at a lot more now, thank heavens. That's one of the positive spinoffs of this terrible epidemic. People are realizing and people of goodwill, we all have some degree of inherent human, again, part of our humanities, to be good, to do the right thing, actually. That's sort of built into our psyche. For some of us, it gets to be developed and executed. For others, it doesn't. But that's just all part of the dynamics, which we hope to get people to see and recognize and look within themselves and look within those with whom they're interacting and try to accentuate those potential characteristics of our human nature. It's spelled out in the book, and it's exemplified 
in the individuals that we try to expose the reader to. That includes people who experience sexual abuse, people who are gay, people who are transgender, Asian Americans, African Americans, and females. And we sort of show their individual characteristic and their common humanity. So we hope it will be helpful. We'll see how it goes. A sad coincidence that the book we had started writing with these goals in mind, and then lo and behold, it gets dramatized. Again, human realities get woefully exposed due to the pandemic and due to some of these horrible racial incidents that have been so obvious. And those come together just at the time when we were trying to address some of these things in our book. And that's kind of a sad, ironic coincidence. But that's the way it is. Accidents for sure. So congratulations on the book you're talking about, the upcoming new book, Overcoming Lessons in Triumphing Over Adversity and the Power of Our Common Humanity. So are you excited? Are you ready (laughs) to go on your virtual and your physical book tour? (laughs) Well, yes, I am. I think the messages that these fellow humans exemplify are worth knowing about. And I think different people will get different elements of inspiration from different interviewees. Different ones have things to offer. And we hope that everyone will find something. Of course, we all have major challenges in our lives. You can't avoid it. Fifty percent or more people will have some tragic incident in their life. And if they have resilience and they can have the good fortune of having guidance or having exposure to someone who's resilient, they may see the commonality of things that they can bring to the situation to improve their problem. I appreciate the opportunity to at least talk about this, and we'll see how it helps. But I think the intrinsic value of our common humanity is there to be exploited to our benefit and to benefit of the society and to the benefit of others in that process. Absolutely. What's your favorite chapter in the book? You know, it's interesting. I've had a few interviews. Everyone asks me that. And first time I mentioned it, my wife told me I shouldn't answer it because everybody's important and we shouldn't choose. Her choice was the lost boy of Sudan, Menak Gold, the African boy who grew up with his friends and relatives being assassinated around him. And he was finally able to find his way to the United States and made a tremendous recovery and got an education at Brandeis University and was able to bring many of his relatives over and get them situated here in the United States. That's a very impressive achievement. I'm so impressed by many of them. Another one is the African-American orthopedic surgeon who is also an astronaut. He also went through the rigorous training to become an astronaut and was able to get a Ph.D. from MIT over the same period of years took a little longer, but at the same time was able to get an MD from Harvard. So he has an MD, PhD from Harvard and MIT, and is an astronaut and is an orthopedic surgeon. That's Robert Satcher. David Satcher is his uncle, who is a past surgeon general, who was an African-American individual. Heller Marini, female Division One quarterback coach, football team at Brown. That's a pretty interesting challenge. I think that she's been able to meet successfully. But there are just so many 
But I love the way that you put it on your wife and you said, well, my wife's favorite one was. (laughs) Talk about clever. (laughs) Well, that's right. But she took them out. She's really clever. It is an interesting question. And, you know, I mean, there's such tremendous variation in the personalities and in the human beings and in the way they experience life and the way they worked with the resources they had to help them and created resources And some just absolutely refused to give up. You know, giving up is not on the agenda. It's not part of the process. That's just natural resilience, I think. I agree. As you look at the times that we're in and the life you continue to live, what would you like to see in the future? Well, man's inhumanity to man is unbelievable. I mean, one of the things we haven't talked about was what it's like to be a combat surgeon in Vietnam and work day in and day out to try to salvage the lives and limbs of your brothers and beings who are being mutilated. And people make decisions about war, and they have no idea what they're making decisions about in all too many instances. It would be wonderful if I had a huge foundation that whenever there's a war anywhere in the world, I could gather up a few of the world leaders and let them go and spend 48 hours with a combat surgeon in the middle of the war. So when they decide about engaging in war, they'll have some idea of what they're deciding about. The reality is that in wars, there are no winners. They're just losers and greater losers. People talk about wars and winning wars. Well, (laughs) you may have won, but what did it cost? What did you lose? So I think we need to know what we are talking about and what we are deciding about when we engage in wars. I would hope that more and more leaders could come to understand that you may win, but you're going to lose as well. The loss is the loss. The loss doesn't go away. It's still there, and it costs an awful lot to engage in wars. War is awful. I just don't even know why, Dr. White, in the 21st century, we even have weapons. It just doesn't make sense to me. It just goes to show that at a spiritual level, we still haven't evolved to the level that we can even though we will, remember that, we will yeah. evolve. Just that we're going through our growing pains. Anyway, so what's the main message you would like to leave our amazing audience with today? Well, I think I'm going to say this. Each of you have what I call a sphere of influence. What I mean by that is that somewhere around your life, there are people, there are institutions, there are resources that you control. They're in your sphere of influence, whether it's how good or polite you are to your customers, whether you're a surgeon or you're a nurse or you're a police officer or you're a CEO of a corporation, you have a sphere of influence. Some of the spheres are larger than others, but none of them should be ignored. They can make a difference. And I think Robert Kennedy expressed it well. He said, these little waves of influence and these little waves of impact coalesce and combine and become powerful tsunamis of force that can make the change. So as you suggest, what can we do? We should recognize our sphere of influence and recognize that it has an impact and use that part of our humanity which encourages us to, quote, do the right thing. I think those things will add up and we will all, you and everyone else, will benefit if we can manage to do that. So do the right thing within your sphere of influence would be my message. That's a 
beautiful message, and you're a beautiful spirit. The world is a better place because of you. Thank you so much for joining us on air today, Dr. White. It's been my privilege, my honor. Well, thank you for the privilege and the honor. I've enjoyed you. Obviously, you have a tremendous sphere of influence, and you're using it most constructively. So we all are grateful for that. Thank you so much, Dr. White. Many blessings and love to your wife. Okay. Thank you very much. I'll send you best. Okay. Take care Thank now. Thank you. Bye-bye. So beautiful to speak to such words of wisdom, you know, and these particular personalities who have been there, done that. But just when you focus your energies in something that is of service or of benefit to others and how it can impact lives, you know, you don't really need to wait for the break. Just be the break. Put your best in everything. Yeah, you know, there's a lot going on. And, of course, the soul wants to always see some sort of a proof. It's just the natural human nature of our beings. But don't give up on the work. There's beauty in the work. There's joy in the work. So if you want some more information on looking out for Dr. Augustus White III, upcoming release, Overcoming Lessons in Triumphing Over Adversity and the Power of Our Common Humanity, just go to Amazon and put in his name, and you should be able to get it. All right, thanks for joining us today. Remember, no one can take away your happiness unless you give them permission. And we really are here to love each other the same. Let's listen to some Joe Rob on Wake Up. Take care, everyone. Be well.
Let it break you, motivate you, make it work for you. Cause you the number one son and you know what to do. You gon' keep, keep knocking at these doors and knock, knock, knock until you knock it down. I'm Sister Jenna. You've been listening to America Meditating Podcast. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Did you enjoy that conversation? Because you can also listen to it on Spotify or on iTunes, 24-7, anytime, anywhere. I do trust we all have inner power to become our very best. When we listen with curiosity to learn more, we grow. So thanks so much for tuning in, and do be easy on yourself. Take care.